Welcome to the Shortwave Report for June 1st, 2012. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on a shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio and a schedule of English-language broadcast or a computer with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's www.outfarpress.com, you can find a schedule for dozens of international broadcasters in English. There you can also listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from NHK World Radio Japan, Radio Havana Cuba, Radio Deutsche Welle, and The Voice of Russia. We'll begin with NHK World Radio Japan. The Assembly in Nepal failed to write a new constitution and thus will have fresh elections in November. The former Japanese Prime Minister says that Japan must completely abandon nuclear power and blames the current government for promoting it. Japanese scientists say that radioactive substances from Fukushima reached around the world within 40 days of the accident. Small amounts of radioactive cesium are present in bluefin tuna caught off the coast of California. Smartphones with built-in Geiger counters will soon be on sale in Japan. On Friday, Japan and China will begin direct currency trading without using U.S. dollars to set exchange rates. Rival Palestinian factions are looking to hold elections by the end of the year. NHK Japan Nepal's Constituent Assembly has failed to complete a new constitution before the deadline expired at midnight on Sunday. Nepalese Prime Minister Baburam Bhattarai announced at midnight that fresh elections will be held on November 22nd to elect a new assembly to write the constitution. The move is based on a Supreme Court decision last November that the Constituent Assembly must be disbanded if it fails to complete its task before its term expires on May 27th. The Assembly was elected in 2008 when Nepal became a republic after a decade-long civil war. Political parties have been unable to agree on whether to establish states on the basis of ethnicity. Since the end of the civil war, the international community, including Japan, has sent ceasefire observers and provided financial support to Nepal. But the political turmoil has hampered efforts to reconstruct social infrastructure, such as electricity generation plants, in the country. Former Japanese Prime Minister Naoto Kan says the nuclear accident at Fukushima convinced him that for safety's sake, Japan must end its dependence on nuclear energy. Khan on Monday attended a hearing of a panel appointed by the Diet to investigate the accident at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant that began on March 11th of last year. He blamed the government for promoting nuclear power as a national policy. He apologised for failing to prevent the accident as the head of government at the time. Khan said a nuclear safety agency said nothing about what would happen in such an accident, nor did the government receive information from other sources. He added that he feared the situation could get out of control. 
The former Prime Minister criticised what he calls an inner circle of nuclear policymakers, experts and businesses for trying to hold on to their power without doing any soul-searching after the accident. He said disbanding the circle is the first step in a comprehensive reform of nuclear policy. He also said the accident could have jeopardised state functions and that he is convinced the safest way forward for Japan is to end its nuclear power generation. The panel plans to compile a report on its investigation by next month at the earliest and submit it to the heads of both chambers of the Diet. Japanese scientists say radioactive substances from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant may have been dispersed all around the globe in about 40 days. A research team led by Akira Watanabe, a Fukushima University professor and meteorologist, measured the daily concentration of airborne radioactive substances in Fukushima City since May last year. The research results show that the concentration of radioactive materials in the air during the first month of the survey was on average 0.0048 becquerels per cubic meter. About 10 months later, in March this year, the figure decreased by around 85%. The researchers say the overall density is declining but continues to rise and fall alternately in a 40-day cycle. They say radioactive materials from the Fukushima plant fell to the ground in various parts of the world, carried by atmospheric air flows, and then gradually decreased. A U.S. research team says trace amounts of radioactive cesium were detected in bluefin tuna caught off the Californian coast last August. The contamination reportedly stems from the Fukushima nuclear disaster. A team, including a Stanford University researcher, released the findings in a U.S. science journal on Monday. The study shows that 15 bluefin tuna caught off San Diego, California, contained 4 becquerels of cesium-134 per kilogram and 6.3 becquerels of cesium-137 per kilogram. The team says these levels pose no harm for human consumption. Bluefin tuna caught in the same waters in 2008 reportedly carried no cesium-134 and only negligible levels of cesium-137. The findings suggest that the tuna were most likely contaminated near Japan during last year's nuclear disaster before migrating to the U.S. West Coast. For consumers worried about nuclear hotspots after the Fukushima crisis, a personal Geiger counter could soon be as close as their mobile phone. Major Japanese mobile com phone company SoftBank is releasing a smartphone this summer with a built-in radiation detector. SoftBank unveiled the phone on Tuesday at a launch event for new products. The company says a simple touch of the screen lets users measure the radiation around them in about two minutes. Users will be able to save the readings and also keep track of location data. The release of the new phone in Japan comes amid growing health awareness, particularly among mothers with small children. SoftBank chairman and CEO Masayoshi Son says that with the soft smartphone, a mother will be able to measure radiation levels between her home and her child's school and save the data on the phone's map. Japan and China will start direct trading between their currencies, the yen and the yuan, on Friday in the Tokyo and Shanghai markets. The move is expected to accelerate trade and financial transactions between Asia's two largest economies. Japanese Finance Minister Jun Azumi made the announcement on Tuesday. 
The decision came after a bilateral summit last December. The leaders of the two countries agreed to promote direct trading of their currencies without the interim step of using dollars to set exchange rates. The move will help businesses in both countries reduce costs and foreign exchange risks. It is also expected to help accelerate the use of the yuan as a currency for trade settlements, a major step toward the yuan reform. Azumi said the step will contribute not only to improving the convenience of currency exchanges, but also to reinvigorating the Tokyo foreign exchange. Market. Rival Palestinian factions Hamas and Fatah are reportedly seeking to hold elections by the end of the year in a step toward reconciliation. Palestinian media say the two sides are planning to launch an interim unity government in early June to prepare for elections for the president and parliament of the Palestinian Authority. Election officials expect preparation to take roughly five months. On Monday, the officials won assurances from Hamas leader Ismail Haniya to resume procedures. The Islamic group has ruled Gaza since seizing the territory in 2007. The West Bank is governed by Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, who leads Fatah. Both sides agreed to hold joint elections in May last year, but preparations have been delayed over the interim government's lineup and other disagreements. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan, heard from 10 p.m. to 10 30 at 6110, or on the web at www.nhk.or.jp. All the times I'm announcing are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so adjust them to your time zone. Next, Radio Havana, Cuba. An international meeting on the situation in the Palestinian territories is taking place at UNESCO headquarters in Paris. Britain's Supreme Court upheld the extradition of Julian Assange to Sweden. The New York Times reports that President Obama personally oversees a kill list for those targeted for assassination in the secret U.S. drone wars. The Obama administration plans to arm Italy's fleet of U.S. made drones with missiles. Radio Havana, Cuba. An international meeting on the situation in the Palestinian territories occupied by Israel is taking place at UNESCO headquarters in Paris. The two day meeting is organized by the Committee on the Inalienable Rights of the Palestinian People, of which Cuba is vice president. And will examine the role of Jews and women in finding a solution to the conflict. Panels of experts will discuss the main problems affecting the Palestinian people in economic, social, health, training, and job opportunities. Following the meeting on June 1st, a special session on the role of civil society in the Middle East peace process will be held at UNESCO headquarters in Paris. Last year, the General Conference of UNESCO approved the admission of Palestine. To the organization as a full member in a move that was proclaimed momentous and historic. And Britain's Supreme Court has upheld the extradition of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to Sweden after a more than year long legal fight. Swedish authorities claim that they want to question Assange over accusations of rape and sexual assault made by two women. He has been under house arrest in Britain since December 2010. Assange's lawyers had argued that the Swedish public prosecutor did not have the legal authority to issue the arrest warrant, but earlier today, the British judges sided with Sweden in a five to two decision. Assange's supporters have voiced fears that he will wind up in the hands of the United States should he be deported to Sweden. 
He's been given 14 days to leave Britain and return to Sweden. The New York Times is reporting that President Barack Obama personally oversees a kill list containing the names and photos of individuals targeted for assassination in the secret U.S. drone war. According to the New York Times, Obama signs off on every targeted killing in Yemen and Somalia and the more complex or risky strikes in Pakistan. National Security Advisor Thomas Doloyan said... He has determined that we will make these decisions about how far and wide these operations go. Obama has also said to personally approve every addition to the expanding kill list. Individuals on the list include U.S. citizens as well as teenage girls as young as 17 years of age. And the Wall Street Journal reports that the Barack Obama administration plans to arm Italy's fleet of Reaper drone aircraft, a move that could open the door for sales of advanced hunter-killer drone technology to other allies. The sale will make Italy the first foreign country besides Britain to fly U.S. drones armed with missiles and laser-guided bombs. Critics of the proposed sale include the head of the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee, Dianne Feinstein, a Democratic representative from California. She told reporters that she was concerned by the proliferation of such weapon systems and did not think that the United States should be selling them to foreign countries. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba, heard from 1 p.m. to 2 at 11760 and 6 p.m. to midnight at either 6060, 6010, or 6000. Also streaming on the web from 6 p.m. to midnight at www.radiohc.cu and now podcasting at World Radio Network, wrn.org. On to Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. German Chancellor Merkel reaffirmed plans to completely stop using nuclear power by 2022. The government of Peru declared a 30-day state of emergency in a province where anti-mining demonstrations are being held. A discussion on the Amnesty International annual report on human rights around the world. Iran and other Middle Eastern countries have been hit with a computer virus that includes spyware and the ability to read nearby cell phones. Syrian rebels gave President Assad a 48-hour deadline to abide by the international peace plan. Deutsche Welle. Chancellor Angela Merkel met with leaders of Germany's power grid operators in Bonn on Tuesday. She described the plans to modernize the electricity network as a very major step in the overall plan to end the use of nuclear energy by 2022. Merkel said the transition is feasible in the way it was decided a year ago. The head of the Tenet grid operator, Martin Fuchs, said it would cost about 20 billion euros over the next decade to modernize the existing grid and build around 3,800 kilometers of new, mainly high-voltage power lines. On top of that, a further 12 billion euros would be needed to connect future wind parks. Merkel said that despite the cost, there was no going back on the country's decision to stop using nuclear power. More detailed plans will be announced in Berlin on Wednesday. The government of Peru has declared a 30-day state of emergency in a highlands province where authorities say two people were killed during anti-mining demonstrations and where protesters took a prosecutor hostage. Interior Minister Wilbur Kalla said that 30 police officers were injured on Monday in clashes with protesters near Cusco. 
The protesters claim that the Tinaya copper mine, owned by Swiss-based Extrata, is contaminating local water sources. Extrata is the world's fourth-largest copper producer. This week, Amnesty launched its annual report on human rights issues across the globe, and we're joined on the line by Whitney Brown, who's、uh, the senior director for international law and policy at Amnesty International in London. Whitney, welcome to Worldlink.、Um, one of the many issues that this very comprehensive report covers is access to justice. Could you give us a brief overview of the issue and why it's so important that people have access to justice? Well, access to justice is particularly critical for people who either want to claim their rights or want to make a claim against the state when their rights have been violated. So it's really a fundamental element of being able to enjoy one's human rights. Now, there are different obstacles that that people face.、Um, I mean, the ones that we tend to be most aware of are where there's no independent judiciary, where prosecutions are politically motivated as opposed to independent and aimed at. Ensuring justice for everyone. There are times when it's just deep impoverishment. There are places where many people in the world have literally no access to justice because there's no court system. And of course, sometimes there's discrimination. We all know, for instance, that sometimes women are seen as having、um, being less credible in their testimony, having less weight, and so therefore they're excluded from justice simply because they're women. And、uh, has the situation improved over the past year? I mean, there have been a couple of very high-profile cases. We've had、um, the arrest of uh, General uh, Mladic for alleged war crimes in former Yugoslavia, and we've had the successful prose- prosecution of former Liberian leader Charles Taylor at the International Court in the Hague. So one would have thought this would have been a very good year for access to justice issues. There's definitely were very significant developments, and where justice has been more internationalized through the International Criminal Court or the ad hoc tribunals or even the Special Court for Sierra Leone, we have seen some significant strides made, and I don't want to at all、um, underplay that. And in fact, the International Criminal Court handed down its first verdict this year、uh, in the Lubanga case, the DRC warlord who was convicted of、um, using child soldiers. So that was a that was a significant victory. But in the arrest of Mladic, obviously, is key. But at the same time, we've done research on the number of women in former Yugoslavia who've been denied any access to justice for crimes of sexual violence that happened during the war there. They're simply at the local level bringing. Perpetrators to justice has not happened, and your international criminal court, your ad hoc tribunals, are only ever going to handle a relatively small number of cases. The release of Amnesty's report has coincided with the Egyptians going to the polls in what is, in fact, the country's first free presidential election in 30 years. Can you give us an overview of what kind of problems, in terms of access to justice, the new president will have to address? Um, in terms of the access to justice, it really will be rebuilding the criminal justice system from the ground up in a way that,、uh, again, reinforces the independence of the judiciary and depoliticizes the choice of investigations and prosecutions. Ironically, since Mubarak、uh, left office, there have been more civilians hauled before military tribunals in the last year than you had during the entire reign of Mubarak,、um, and 
civilians simply should never, ever be tried before military tribunals. That's totally unacceptable. So that's a huge issue. We need to dismantle the military tribunal system in Egypt as it applies to civilians. Torture remains widespread um, in Egypt. Um, people who are detained arbitrarily, subjected to torture, brought before military tribunals, all that has to be dismantled. Well, speaking of protesters, at the moment we're seeing protests in Azerbaijan, where, as you know, the Eurovision Song Contest is being hosted. Now, Azerbaijan is one of the countries you single out for criticism in your report. We often see high-profile international events like this being hosted in countries with questionable human rights records. We've got the European football championships coming up in the Ukraine, and last year there were calls for a boycott on the Formula One event in Bahrain. What is Amnesty's position on this? Should there be a boycott, or should these events go ahead? And if so, how can one um, use them most effectively? Well, I think in all these cases, what we want to do is use the focus on the country because of these events to highlight their human rights record and call for there to be more pressure on those governments to observe human rights. Azerbaijan has a miserable record, particularly when it comes to freedom of expression. Um, there, we have numerous prisoners of conscience in Azerbaijan, people who have been convicted of crimes basically for the exercise of their rights. Um, the question about a boycott, I think, is a more nuanced one, where what you need to do is understand whether a boycott of the event would in fact have a positive impact in, in terms of pressure on the government or whether in fact it would just lead to more blame and accusations against activists in the country. Cybersecurity experts said on Tuesday that Iran and other countries in the Middle East have been hit with a computer virus that can eavesdrop on computer users and their co-workers and grab information from nearby cell phones. A Russian internet security firm said that the flame virus was unprecedented in size and complexity. The virus can activate a computer's audio system to listen in on Skype calls as well as take screenshots and log keyboard strokes. One of its more interesting functions is its ability to steal data from Bluetooth-enabled cell phones. Computers in Iran appear to have been particularly affected, but it has also appeared in Israel, the Palestinian territories, Sudan, Syria, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Syrian rebels have given President Bashar al-Assad a 48-hour deadline to abide by an international peace plan to end violence or face consequences. In a statement posted on YouTube, the rebels said they would otherwise free themselves from any commitment by Friday noon, a move to protect civilians and their villages. Russia and China earlier repeated their opposition to foreign military intervention in Syria one day after peace envoy Kofi Annan said the situation there was at tipping point. As fighting between government troops and rebels continues, UN observers say they've discovered another 13 bodies in the east of the country. They were bound and appear to have been executed. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, mediacenter.dw-world.de. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or would like to make a donation for production cost of this unfunded program, I may be reached through the website or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Donations are the only financial support I receive for producing this weekly program. We will conclude with the voice of Russia. 
Russia and China are opposing military intervention in Syria, fearing a repeat of the Libyan and Serbian scenarios. The Voice of Russia Western countries are stepping up their efforts to persuade Russia to stop supporting the regime in Syria. Moscow, at this point in time, is refusing. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said, We are not defending President Bashar Assad and continue to support Kofi Annan's plan to find a peaceful solution to this matter. On Sunday, citing U.S. officials, the New York Times ran a story that said that President Barack Obama is insisting that Russian President Vladimir Putin accept the offer which will see Syrian President Bashar al-Assad to hand over power in the course of negotiations. According to the newspaper, Obama said that at Camp David, there was a meeting on the sidelines of the G8 summit with Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev. He cited the president of former Yemeni President Ali Abdullah Saleh. It was noted at the meeting that Saleh has integrity and was part of an agreement that saw him resigning from his post and overseeing the transfer of power to another. Moscow has blocked several resolutions on Syria in the UN Security Council, fearing a repeat of the Libyan scenario, and while it has not responded officially, on Monday the Kremlin let it be known that it has no intention of changing its policy towards Syria. The tragedy in the Syrian village of Hula, where more than 120 civilians were killed, has sparked new attempts to persuade Moscow to change its mind. UK Foreign Minister William Hague made an emergency visit to Moscow on Monday, where he met with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. At a news conference that both of them attended, it became apparent that the two state spokesmen failed to come to any sort of concrete agreement. At a press conference, Lavrov said that some of the blame for the massacre at Hula can be assigned to the Syrian government. At the same time, he continued, We do not support the government of Syria. We support Kofi Annan's peace plan, which aims to solve the differences between the authorities and the armed opposition. Lavrov went on to say that in order to avoid a repetition of the events in Hula, it is necessary that foreign players also try to implement the peace plan, rather than attempt to crudely force regime change. The international community should also choose between pursuing geopolitical goals or saving human lives in Syria. This is a very clear and straightforward answer. Russia is not giving in to the wishes of Western powers and is showing no desire to start negotiating for the surrender of Bashar al-Assad. On one hand, the Kremlin seems to believe that Kofi Annan and his team of UN peacekeepers will be able to persuade Assad to stop the violence. On Monday, Annan arrived in Damascus and was scheduled to meet with the Syrian president on Tuesday. On the other hand, Moscow has not ruled out that there was a provocation in Hula. At a press conference, Lavrov recalled the events that happened 13 years ago in the village of Radchak, which is located in the former Yugoslavia. He said the head of the OSCE arrived in Radchak and, lacking any authority, took it upon himself to announce that a genocide had taken place there. In turn, this announcement was later used and was in fact the pretext that allowed the bombing of Serbia to begin. All of this was done without any authorization and in complete violation of the OSCE and the UN Charter. He noted that after these events, the EU then invited a group of Finnish pathologists to find out what really happened there. After some time, the Finnish experts wrapped up their report and then sent the finalized text to the European Union and the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. When mass media received a copy of the report that denounced the official version of events, it was quickly swept under the rug and forgotten. Nevertheless, the pressure on Damascus and Moscow is growing. General Martin Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said that following the UN Security Council's condemnation of the slaughter, 
in which more than 100 people were killed, many of them children, there needed to be increased diplomatic pressure on Damascus. But he added that the U.S. would be prepared to act militarily if it was asked to do so. He told Fox News there is always a military option. That report was from the voice of Russia. Russia is now heard from 6 p.m. to 11 at 15425-9800 and 9665 or through their website www.english.ruvr.ru. All the times I've announced are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time. Please adjust them to your time zone. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcast using a shortwave radio at home, which is far simpler than you might think. However, if you use the internet, listening globally is also quite easy. See the links at this program's website. Every Friday morning, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's www.outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, find internet links for international broadcasts, Broadcasters make a safe donation through PayPal and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report is free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.